0: Food is like a carrier molecule for so many things, right? I mean, we need to eat like several times a day and all that stuff. But food expresses love. It expresses care. You know, your kids sit down at dinner. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: It doesn't even really matter what you're eating. It's the sitting down. But you're sitting down around the food. Like food is identity. You know, it's like family recipes, recipes. And food is nostalgia. Mm Um. You know, it's like the thing you ate as a child. Food tells you about where you came from and who you are and who who you came from. Um, so, you know, all that's not really about actually eating it. Um, yeah, and I guess food is a story in its own way. Um, it's a it's never quite the same. You know, you can make the same recipe twice, but the, the same recipe is never quite the same, you know? mm mm-hmm. um, So I don't know, I think there's like sort of an intersection between telling stories and making food.
2: That was author and journalist Julia O'Malley. Journalism has been part of Julia's life since elementary school, where she remembers carrying around a notebook to keep track of what her classmates were doing. Then in high school, she wrote for her school newspaper. But her love for cooking goes back even further. In fact, one of her first memories is of being two or three years old and mixing blueberries and milk in her toy kitchen. The dinner table was a sacred place in Julia's household. Sitting down and sharing a meal was important, and everyone had a role. Be it cooking the meal, setting the table, or clearing the table. That affection for food also extended outside of home-cooked meals. Growing up in Anchorage in the 1980s, there wasn't a big variety of restaurants and what was cooked in homes. Ingredients were scarce then, so, when they were available, new meals were an experience that Julia cherished. When she thinks about food today, she says that it's more than just sustenance, it expresses love, culture, care, identity, and nostalgia. So here she is, Julia O'Malley. Welcome to Chattermarks,
1: a podcast
0: of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity. Through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past,
2: Past, present, and and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So Julia, you just told me that you put a cake in the oven and forgot about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well... Uh no I mean I've done that too. I put it in the oven but then forgot about like that whole tail end part of the cake where it has to bake and um
2: Oh okay. And
0: that ran right into our talking time but hope my son is getting he's 10. He I just don't want him to burn himself but he's getting alright with take he's been in this position before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the emergency bake situation.
0: Yeah, the like can you take it out of the oven? Um yeah, whatever. It's just cake. There's always more cake.
2: It's pretty funny that you, you told me that right before we started the conversation, because my first question is, what's the last thing you cooked?
0: Oh, I did a lot of cooking. I did some cooking today, some sort of interstitial cooking. I made spaghetti sauce, um, which I can do. It's like this recipe I can like do in my sleep. And then Um, And then just now I threw together an applesauce cake with applesauce from my mom's apples and yogurt that I have made. So I felt pretty, you know, Little House on the Prairie style about it. (laughs) Boxcar children about it. I don't know.
2: Oh, my gosh. That is even more ironic that you brought up the boxcar children because Mm -hmm. me and my wife, Carrie, have been talking about old books that we grew up with. And she brought up Nancy Drew and I brought up the Boxcar Children as a book that really got me into reading books.
0: Yeah, dude, that was a good one. I really like that one. I I read it to my kids. I don't know. I try and still trying to get them into books, but yeah, that was a good one.
2: What did they think of it?
0: Um, they liked it. I think we read like a few more. Like after that, they liked it. But I don't. They weren't quite as captivated as I was, just because I don't know. They just aren't. You know, the things that you think are funny or cool from your childhood <laughs> and then you try to introduce them to your kids. Like, for yeah. example, Zoolander. Like, I don't recommend that, actually. I was like, I remember that being funny. And I was like, oh, not funny now. Not funny now. <laughs>
1: like, sort of <laughs> offensive. Upsies. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway.
2: Do you have any food from your childhood that... Um, maybe you have the same relationship with that you, you remember fondly, but then you've gone back to it and you're like, Oh no, this isn't, this isn't how I remembered.
0: There's so many things like that. Like we, I ate a lot of Jello as a kid. Um, and we put like milk on it. Um, that was a weird thing. And my kids are just like, can't be bothered by Jello; They're not into it. And, um, custard is another childhood food. I think they're starting to like that. Um, but also lots of can. I ate lots of – I mean, I grew up here like you did, but we mm-hmm. ate canned fruit, like, pretty regularly, and the kids totally don't have, like, any kind of sense of that. Like, we ate, like, mandarin oranges or that fruit cocktail with those little waxy cherries or,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know um, – anyway, they they don't – they don't really – have it Oh, yeah, and also Pilot Bread. They have, like, no sense of that. I brought that to school in my lunch with peanut butter between two slices of it. Like, that's so insane. Like, if I think about trying to eat that now. <laughs> it's just, like, dry. That's really dry. Um, it's a lot of carbs right there.
2: You know, I didn't really have a relationship with Pilot Bread at all when I was younger. And I think the only time I really had it was, was as an adult. And I tried it. And I was like, "Oh, okay, you know, now that I now I've tried this, rather than yeah. like, oh, this is nostalgic."
0: Yeah, it was like a th- well, my parents grew up here too, and it was just like a thing we always had. It tasted different though; they it had trans fats back in the day. It had a little bit of a different taste and texture. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, it was always around in my house because um, it was always around in my mom's house. But it. I have it at my house, but my kids have no interest. I also tried to get them into Pop-Tarts and they like totally like weren't into it. And I was like, these are delicious. You have to understand like, this is like, especially the one that's like the cinnamon brown sugar Um, yeah, no, my older son, I feel like he tries to please me. So he'll like eat things. I'm like, these are Totino's pizza rolls, children. (laughs) You should try these because I remember them being like special. And they're like, yeah, mm, not really. Like, I don't know. Anyway,
2: I like this, uh, this part of you that's trying to get your kids into eating junk food from your childhood.
0: Right? Because I just think they're going to like it. And I think they're going to be like, this is special and cool but it's not like, I'm not cool because I'm old and I can't even simulate coolness. I don't even know what would be something cool for them to eat. Like, and they tell me that.
2: Do your kids have a favorite meal?
0: They're super picky. Um, there's only like a few kind of meals on rotation for them, um, which is like so ironic. I make myself like and I I'm like a single parent, I like have to cook just like for myself alone. (laughs) But I make myself like these elaborate things, but they're just like, bean burrito, (laughs) taco with taco meat, spaghetti, uh, grilled cheese sandwich, macaroni and cheese. They will eat certain chicken if it is very plain. Um, And my younger one will eat things like apples or broccoli or, you know, but my older child is like, he barely, I have to like give him special fiber vitamins. Like he barely touches like Mm -hmm. plant matter. I don't know how I got, they got that way. I definitely exposed them to a lot of foods. My older one has been picky since he was like, introducing, we're introducing foods to him. So I don't know. You never know what you're going to get kids, man.
2: It's funny because as you were describing their diet, I, uh, I identify with it. That's my diet as well. (laughs) (laughs) Tacos, pizza, uh, macaroni, um, all of it.
0: Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of like American comfort food, I guess.
2: What's one of your favorite things to cook?
0: Oh, man. What am I into right now? Well, I just made this like epic multi-step like uh, recipe for these brioche cinnamon rolls that they were just neat to make. They were pumpkin brioche cinnamon rolls with like pumpkin in the filling and uh a coffee frosting so it was like a pumpkin spice latte but like as expressed in like really beautiful cinnamon roll Mm -hmm. um and that was really fun to make I don't actually eat a lot of wheat ever since I had a kid I can't digest it all that well so I couldn't really eat them which was weird um but sometimes cooking for me is like not even about eating it it's about like like I was making them for this friend of mine who had a baby and was like exhausted and it was like really fun to like make something, have an excuse to make something kind of elaborate. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm kind of a baker. I'm a baker. I tend to bake a lot. I bake bread and cakes and cookies and things of that nature. And then, um, I like meats. Like, I like to mess around with, like, big meat, but I don't get it that often because I try to buy, like, quality meat. It's kind of expensive. hmm um, I like to braise. I'm real into braising. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like a risotto now and then. I'm really into using the Instant Pot. Um, and I do a lot of, like, roasting with vegetables. Um and, um, oh, also I have like a thing with dip. Like it's like a problem. <laughs> like a Really? Yeah. We have like a thing called private dip time where you just like make delicious dip and then you like are alone with it and you just kind of like eat more than you should. But anyway, I don't know. How do we get on that? I was sort of going around, going off there.
2: You know, just a second ago, you said that making food isn't always about eating it. Could you explain it a little more?
0: I don't know. Food is like, and I've, I've written about this and talked about it a lot, but food is like a carrier molecule for so many things, right? I mean, we need to eat like several times a day and all that stuff, but food expresses love. It expresses care. You know, your kids sit down at dinner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it doesn't even really matter what you're eating. It's the sitting down, but you're sitting down around the food. Like food is identity, You know it's like family recipes recipes and food is nostalgia Mm -hmm. um you know it's like the thing you ate as a child food tells you about where you came from and who you are and who who you came from um so you know all that's not really about actually eating it um yeah and i guess food is a story in its own way um it's a it's never quite the same you know, you can make the same recipe twice, but the the same recipe is never quite the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, I think there's like sort of an intersection between telling stories and making food in a weird way. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: No, it, it, it does. Uh, my, my mother-in-law is a big cook and she introduced me a few years back to Anthony Bourdain and I, um, I only watched him a few times and still have only seen really like maybe a handful of episodes, but after, you know, that first episode that I watched of his documentary or one of his documentaries, I got it. You know, it was, it was using food as this entry point to talk about, you know, identity and culture and love and nostalgia, you know, all the things that you're talking about right now.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I think um, the thing about food, especially in a highly kind of charged and politicized time is that food sort of is its own neighborhood, like you can still talk to people that you don't, you don't agree with politically, in an intimate way, like you can really get into it about food. And people don't, you know, trust as a journalist doesn't quite work the same way because there's like a whole segment of the world that doesn't trust journalists anymore mm-hmm. but when you're calling someone up to ask them about food that distrust isn't really there necessarily um you know because it's just its own sort of thing i guess
2: was there a point when you recognize that you know as a journalist who's Who's covered? You know, social issues, health issues, uh, politics, and then you know you're calling someone to talk about food, and all of a sudden their guard's down.
0: I don't, I don't know how it got to be this way, but I I started reporting when I was a young reporter a lot about the census, um, and so it I found myself I spent a ton of time it was about immigrant and refugee communities, a lot of work there. And I spent a ton of time in Mountain View with people from all kinds of different places, but it always ended up that we were in the kitchen. Um, And especially when I was connecting with women, I don't know if it's like a gender thing, but in a lot of my reporting, including in villages and stuff, I just would find myself in the kitchen. And it's like, once we got there, And there was this sort of other thing happening. So it wasn't like them sitting on a couch and me interviewing them, but it was Mm -hmm. more like me talking to them, but them doing something. Um, I don't know. Once we got to that space, there was just this sort of relaxing quality to it where anyway, I, I found that my reporting often led me to the kitchen even when it wasn't about
2: food. Mm -hmm. After you recognized that, did you, uh, try to get back to the kitchen.
0: Well, oh, it's kind of funny like I don't there isn't really an opportunity for me to like live in Alaska and be a food writer um all the time, you know. Uh so it's now that I write I do write recipes for a couple of publications here, which is kind of a cool new thing, but for a lot of my time, as a journalist, I really was doing journalism, um, but secretly being obsessed with food. Um, So cooking a lot, reading a lot, you know, eating a lot, eating, eating, eating lots of places, trying lots of places, groceries, you know, hunting, like all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until, you know, I got to a place that I wasn't working in a daily paper anymore that I kind of started to do food journalism, like put those things together.
2: Where do you think your love of, or attraction to cooking comes from?
1: Mm,
0: I, you know, that's hard to figure. My dad's family has a ton of really good cooks. My mom is a good cook. She really likes food. Um, you know, my grandmothers weren't good cooks either one of them. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Um I think it's more that there was like a value in my family and my extended family of dinner. Mm-hmm. That meals were super important. Like we always sat down to dinner and we had family dinner. Um and the table was like a key thing and like setting the table and sitting at the table and clearing the table and being excused from the table and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. i think um it just was this kind of focal point always um and so to be part of that to sort of be part of that i don't know the power structure of my family was to be part of the kitchen to have a role in the kitchen and I just gravator gravitated toward cooking
1: Mm -hmm.
0: in college. I lived in, um, I had a really hard time in college. I didn't have any friends. I was on the East coast. I had a hard time just digging the vibe there, but I ended up living for a year in this vegetarian co-op where we all cooked for ourselves. Um, And it was like very communal. And we made like consensus-based decisions about food. And it was like a total like women's college trip. But um, that's a place where those skills that I had grown up with, like I found my place. Like I I cooked then for 14 women, you know, regularly. And um, I just, I realized that like whatever that was, like the way that the culture of my family had shaped me, it gave me the skills to kind of find my place finally in college. Um, So I think that was pretty influential as well.
2: Mm -hmm. So I brought up my mother-in-law earlier and how she's a good cook, but her and my wife, Carrie also have always liked to go out to eat. Um, But I grew up in a household where we always ate at home. And so uh, this is kind of like a, kind of like a, this this ongoing joke that I don't know how to order food at restaurants and they taught me mm-hmm. how to order food at restaurants because I was so unfamiliar with it. You know, there were there were points where um, I'd finish with my meal and then I'd like stack my plate and then like bring it to them because I was so like unfamiliar with like going out. Uh, dining. Yeah, like dining, going to the restaurants and stuff. And so, um, I don't know. I guess that's that's a little bit of my food experience
0: I have um, always been really interested in restaurants. I had a job early in college where I was a cater waiter in Fairbanks, and like worked and did prep cooking, and that was pretty fun. Um, and then I had, you know, uh, I had this friend Kim Severson, who still my good friend. She's now works at the Times in the food section, but she worked at ADN, and um, and I would eat out a lot with her. She kind of taught me stuff like sit down and put your napkin on your lap, like think, you know, like, I don't Mm -hmm. know, just sort of stuff like that. But that sort of set me into this thing of like, I really like to eat, find restaurants, eat at restaurants, think about restaurants. And for a number of years, I um, helped out where you kind of, food journalists, like around the country, like eat, and then they talk about what they eat. um, And restaurants can get awarded this thing called the James Beard. Um, award, there's like a whole bunch of different ones for different types of restaurants, but I like did a lot of eating and talking about it and sort of learning to talk more critically about food and atmosphere and dining. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and that was also something I did while I was working at ADN for years and years, I did it. um, And that taught me a lot um, just to think about restaurant food. And that's like a whole other genre, real different than recipes in your home kitchen that's about experience you know Mm -hmm. like a total experience so it's not just the food either but the way that you're treated by staff the environment and atmosphere of a place like all that stuff
2: yeah i've been to really like okay restaurants but i love their atmosphere yeah and i'll just keep going back
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a number of restaurants that really do a lot of volume. So the food is kind of okay. But the the feeling of the restaurant is really welcoming um, feels of the place, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I also like, I like a real kind of B level Mexican restaurant. Like I will eat that. <laughs> <laughs> like give me a cheese enchilada. There's something about like being able to bring my kids to a place where it like doesn't matter if they're going to mess it up. And mm-hmm. cause it's just kind of like real casual and like letting them eat so many chips. <laughs> like I'm totally in like color. Like yeah. that is great. Like I'll take it. And yeah. Um. You know, used like I don't drink now, but I used to it used to also be cool because there's always like a drink menu plus a kids menu. Like there's just like a certain genre of restaurant that has kids menu and drink menu, Mm -hmm. and that's like what you want. Um anyway.
2: You know, this might be kind of a weird question, but you know, because you're a foodie, I think you might have something. What's one of your first memories of food?
0: My first memories of food is like being in a pretend kitchen. Um, it's like one of my very first memories actually. And it's like stirring like little tiny pans on like a metal little tiny stove with, mm-hmm. um, with blueberries and milk in them. Um, so I was already cooking. I was, I think I was like two or three. It's like, I can remember that.
2: So we talked a little bit about this before, but you come from a journalistic background Mm -hmm. where you've done and continue to write articles about politics and social and health issues. What determines when you write about politics, social and health issues, and when you write about food?
0: Well, I've been an editor now for a couple of years at Alaska public media and The big determiner for me when I write anything is just uh, the pandemic has made it so there's no childcare. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. I've written three stories in the last two years, maybe two for The Times and one just kind of recently in the ADN. Um, And all of them were, I think... Two of them were memoir type essays and then one was like about fishing in Bristol Bay during the pandemic. But like, I think a lot of people, a lot of writers like me have that same, especially women have that problem right now where you just like, I'm just working and guiding coverage of like, basically politics in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that takes up like a full day. And then I have my kids and there isn't much wiggle room. So I'm hoping for things to continue to kind of settle out, but um, maybe to get an after-school program (laughs) going. Um, But, uh, you know, I write recipes regularly. Like I do a one monthly for the ADN and then I do one quarterly for edible. Mm And that's about as much as I can do. And so I'm just like testing recipes and then writing them. Um, And that's been a sort of a nice thing to do because sometimes this pandemic period makes you feel like there's so little you can control, you know, but dough, you can totally control dough. I mean, for the most part, (laughs) you know, or whatever, like cooking is something that is sort of grounding. Yeah. So I've appreciated that.
2: You know, I'm not sure if you're like this, but, um, how I go about stories is, you know, I'll do, um, I'll do stories that I know that I have to do or interviews that I, that I know that, you know, this is, this is part of the work, but then there are interviews about snowboarding that I'll kind of give myself as a treat. Do you feel like it's a little of the same way with you and food?
0: Yeah, it just, yeah. I mean, I always get stressed out when I'm gonna write something and it's always just about time. Mm -hmm. Like having enough time, Um, but I have these like I was in the middle of the story right when the pandemic hit that I had to stop doing, but I kind of want to finish that one. Um, There's just this way in which writing is sort of spiritually good, Mm -hmm. that being like a boss engaged in daily news coverage just doesn't quite fill your cup the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, yeah, I don't know. I have a hard time with the balance right now. Like I am just trying to kind of like provide an environment for my kids that feels, cause they didn't, you know, like they didn't go to school most of last year. Like they, they were out of school
1: mm-hmm.
0: and worked like learning from home, which was like crazy. I can't believe I survived that. <laughs> um, but they're back at school and that's like saner. Um, But things still kind of, I just am, you know, trying to keep things just real chill for them, you know, and also keep them from getting coronavirus and also, you know, keep them from getting fat or being too bored or, you know, like all that stuff. Um, And so that's sort of like my focus. But I, in like the moments, like, which are a few where I like find myself lying in bed. My head fills up with stories, like things I want to do. Um, it's just hard to do them right now. I don't know how to carve out the time. I need a benefactor. Maybe that that person is listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I don't dislike editing. Like that's fun and I'm learning a lot and it's a real trial by fire time, but it just isn't the same.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Something that I've always liked about your articles is how, from the jump, from the very beginning, the, the reader is dropped straight into the action. How do you come up with, you know, how you're going to start an article?
0: I use a pretty specific technique where I, um, I survey my material, not too close um but i like look at everything i've collected and then i spend a little time away from it and i think about what i remember i use my memory as like a sorting device i often give this advice to writers who if any of them are listening to this podcast would recommend would uh, probably recognize it but the things that you remember are usually Uh, emotionally kind of evocative and sometimes you have to unpack why it as you remember certain details Um, but that usually helps me sort through things Um, and then I just try to think like a reporter like I've always thought which is that people there's a lot of competition and people don't have a lot of time so how can you draw someone in with a sense of tension quickly Mm -hmm. I think is a good question. Um, You know, how can you pose a question? How can you reveal enough to make someone want to read further? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard when you get assigned stories and it's hard to find that. And that sometimes happens. Um, But, you know, that's also just part of the work of it. Like writing is a practice, you know, and sometimes you just have to do your best.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you get better at it over time. You know, one of the one of the techniques that that I have uh kind of learned is there are inevitably going to be paragraphs that are very important and maybe they're technical or maybe they include a lot of like facts, and I always try to put that paragraph somewhere right after something of action just happened, you know? So, so as a reader, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, that was great. I loved, you know, that, that paragraph that led into that great quote. And then you just kind of like, uh, I don't want to say trick because I do it Mm -hmm. because I need to trick myself into reading those types of paragraphs. And so as someone who, you know, whose eyes might glaze over when they get to that paragraph, I want to put it in the best place.
0: Well, that's, I think that's a pretty solid technique. I think also that you have to orient your reader pretty clearly and why the heck they're there Mm -hmm. pretty early on. So it's like, well, you can have a great anecdote but it's just like well why why does this even matter like Mm -hmm. um and whether it's like i'm going to tell you the story of like you know how to kill a pig but i'm also going to tell you the story of like the town where the farm is Mm -hmm. um it's gotta for me there's always the narrative and the reporting I think of the structure like a Christmas tree, right? And the narrative runs all the way through the story, but the facts, the sort of reporting, you hang that on the narrative like ornaments. Um, And so, but the other thing with the reporting is that you just want it to be really sharp. Um, And I was never the sharpest reporter. That's something I've had to learn. And I've learned a lot editing from reporters who are sharper than me. But you just want to know cleanly, really good facts that put your narrative into context because a narrative isn't really worth that much on its own. I mean, sure, it can be a compelling story, but journalism is the thing that you do to connect that narrative to a wider set of facts to make your reader smarter or to understand someone's compelling experience within a wider thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's what makes a sort of narrative journalism. And um, I guess that's sort of how I think about that. Um, you know, you don't want to have too many facts that would make your own eyes glaze over in your story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: When you were doing a regular food column for the Anchorage Daily News, was there any point where you were just like, okay, I'm out of ideas?
0: No, I always had ideas, but the hard thing about writing, a hard thing for me, there's a lot of hard things about write, writing recipes is really hard. There's a lot of specificity to it, and I'm a kind of an intuitive cook, so like having to really dig in to write a recipe that somebody can actually reproduce has been really tough. There's like, I've messed up a lot. Um, I also have to shoot the, the food myself and I don't use a camera because I've never been all that good with a real camera. So I always use an iPhone and I can get pretty far, um, but that's, they're never that great. They're never perfect. And um, that drives me nuts. That drives me the craziest of all things. And I, um I should just quit doing it, but you just have to, you kind of have to. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I've definitely gotten better. There's some real heinous food photos in my past. Um, my kid is flushing the toilet in another room. I don't know if you can hear that, but
2: <laughs> I can't hear awesome. it. No. It's
0: really loud. Um, anyway, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, but I never run out of ideas cause that whole thing of like, you're just like sitting food is so seasonal, things are always changing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like a really huge consumer of recipes. Like I, I just look at recipes constantly and I think about recipes constantly and I read lots of food writing all the time. Um, So I kind of also, you know, it's just a, it is like a sort of like a a river (laughs) that I'm, that just runs through me. so I don't ever run out of ideas, but sometimes I feel like I could do a better job presenting them. There are people who are much more suited to, like, writing really uh, specific recipes than me. Um, so I'm always working on that.
2: What do you think are the hardest things about writing recipes?
0: Well, I mean, besides photographing them. Mm-hmm and arranging the photograph, um, ahead of time to not look stupid. Um, the hardest things is just that, you know, sometimes you can make the same recipe a couple of times and it just doesn't turn out the same. That's hard. And trying to figure that out, um, really trying to be specific about technique. Um, I just, when I was talking about that recipe that I made for this sort of like, Ridiculous otherworldly cinnamon rolls. There were things in that recipe that were like not clear. Um, like how thin do you roll the dough? And I it ended up my dough was too thick. Um, or can you let it it said you can let it rise inside, you know, not in the refrigerator, but it doesn't say for how long. It's like any other kind of writing in the sense that you really have to think about who your audience is and then anticipate. Mm -hmm. What they might run into like if you've got a weird ingredient can you substitute substitute something like you know if you know that your audience is short on time are there ways that you can make it quicker or that you can do things passively like marinate or rise um anyway
2: so going back to your your childhood what kinds of foods and restaurants were available you know when you were a kid growing up in anchorage
0: Oh, man, I have thought so much about this, like, um, well, I have these like really kind of vivid memories of experiencing Thai food and having it just like blow my mind when I was about (laughs) eight, Um, you know, there was this Thai food restaurant downtown, I think it was sort of Caddy Corner from Holy Family Cathedral, I want to say that's like H Street, Um, and I just remember the experience of like having pod thai, and it came with like a little pile of sugar and a little pile of like red pepper flake and just having it be like, so magical and amazing. Um, similarly, like, um, I remember there was Saks, which is, was, I think that was in the space that's now crushed. But before that, It was located in what is maybe now a parking lot on 5th Avenue. Yeah. And um, it was like a special place that you would go with your mom, like if you went shopping or something. And um, I remember also in that same age zone, trying pesto Mm -hmm. um, on noodles and being like, just having it be so awesome and also being like, whoa. This is so exotic and different um what else like there was sort of uh some like there's some restaurants that remain the same and I sort of love them for it like La Cabana
1: mm-hmm.
0: still going um uh Lucky Wishbone mm-hmm. still going um oh the Flying Dutchman was also this sort of magical place that I think still kind of exists like right in the Metro mall, but it isn't a, or maybe they moved the bakery part to South Anchorage, but it was this place where you could get like pastries. I remember uh, this pastry called a Napoleon, which is like layers of pastry and cream with this kind of like uh, sugar icing. Um, It's like chocolate and vanilla and it looks marble. Mm -hmm. I remember that being like particularly impactful I remember also like doing stuff like going and meeting a guy in a parking lot and getting like peaches because he was like he had shipped some in or like, yeah you know, sort of like this bootleg quality to food, um, you know, where you're sort of like certain things you can't get them. And my parents really drove that like they had this kind of hunger for stuff like cherries and um, peaches and things like that that were like kind of harder to get to get them in a quality way, like at the grocery store. Oh man. I don't know if you remember this. Remember when cars like reopened and it was like, um, they had like a sushi bar and like fresh orange juice and it was like the coolest grocery store that like ever was.
2: Yeah. I remember that. Um,
0: and you were like, you can get sushi and Chinese food in here. Yeah. Like, um, I remember that being like really like a, like a, Fun, special thing. I also remember teenage years, a lot of teenage time spent at the Red Robin eating French fries with ranch dressing and bottomless Cokes, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Anyway, I could go on. Um, Old time, old timey Anchorage eating.
2: And how do you think that is different than now?
0: I think there's like a lot more ethnic and minority kind of influence in all of the food that we have um there's so much more islander food uh there's tibetan food there are two indian restaurants or three maybe there's like minimal there's a malaysian bakery i don't know if it's still open um there's african food there's just like such a wide variety of you know rest restaurants focusing on foods from countries around the world um I think fine dining kind of restaurants have expanded, but not really all that much. And I think the pandemic has kind of contracted. The big thing that has happened is just the rise of the brewery Mm -hmm. zone, brew pub vibe, the beer and pizza and hot wings zone of things. Mm -hmm. That's really become like a a big piece of how people eat in Anchorage um, and the state, I think, um, But, uh, so, I mean, those are some, I think those are some changes. There's just like more available, more different things available. Um, yeah, there's, I, and there's just like, there's not so few restaurants that you can like try them all. Like one nice thing is that we have a lot of restaurants now. Mm -hmm. Um, there's always something to discover, um, which I really appreciate and it's always changing. Um, just like the city itself, you
2: know. I think there's a difference between going to a restaurant to get full. You know, that's kind of how I grew up. We would go to Lucky Wishbone, you mentioned that earlier. That's kind of like yeah. a family favorite or a cattle company, and you oh go to God, those places <laughs> to get full. Um but then kind of the opposite of that would be going to a restaurant to try the food. You know, maybe you leave and they're small dishes and, uh, you're not necessarily like, you know, cattle company full, but you have tried this new dish. Right.
0: Well, I think, um, one of the reasons that you might have a series of small plates would just be to be able to look at food in that sort of, um, survey kind of way where you're you're trying things where there's an excitement to try flavors and textures Mm -hmm. and cattle company is like i'm hungry and i want something that i don't have to cook done well that i'm used to Mm -hmm. because one of them is like kind of exploration and the other is comfort um so you know there's a and there's a lot of sort of in between all that too but food means a lot of things to different people it's just like it's like a whatchamacallit the italian restaurant over in the tacatnu um what am i you know what i'm thinking about the it's a chain they have olive one garden. a garden yes 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 always a line mm-hmm. at olive garden right and the yeah. italian food there i because i come from italians on one side of my family i'm a little bit like snobby about it like i don't really feel like you can get food that Italians would recognize as Italian food here mm-hmm. uh, you can totally get Italian food if you know what I'm saying but um but all garden is like totally not all that special but people go there and it feels fancy and it's expensive like uh, to get to have to pay like ten dollars for a glass of wine that's like just called red wine like that's very unusual like yeah <laughs> you might usually go somewhere and you would know the name of the wine you're drinking but what that's all about is like, it's like, there's an olive garden everywhere. The food feels relatively fancy, mostly not so much because of the quality, though the quality is kind of fine. It's mostly just the price point. Um, And, you know, there's just this sense of like, this is a fancy place. This food is gonna be good, Um, you know, and uh, it's something that I can expect. Like, I'm gonna take you out to a nice Italian (laughs) Italian Mm. meal, you know? and it's selling something that's different than like, if I don't know, you know, like crush, or if you went to the crow's nest or, you know, wherever, um, you know, is that the chef that night has decided to make a certain number of special dishes of whatever local thing, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I feel like every time a new chain restaurant comes to Alaska people flock to it right to what extent do you think Alaskans obsess over national brands and chain restaurants
0: more than they do any other place but it's just because there's sort of an an annexed nature to living here and Mm -hmm. there's always that like worry that you're like JV team you know like oh I'm not sophisticated and you know because I haven't tried I haven't eaten of the Whatever, like chain restaurant. I haven't had the. Yeah. Do we have a chip? We have a Chipotle
2: here, don't we? I'm not sure. I don't think so.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, it's like I haven't had this food that everyone else is referencing when I read social media, and therefore I'm missing out. I'm not as sophisticated. The world is passing me by. So of course, when you get one, and then there's all these people from somewhere else who are used to having that thing somewhere else. And when they walk into the chain restaurant, it makes them feel like they could be at the one that they remember. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's a lot of things that drive that, but there is this like, you know, we just like don't want to be on the JV team, right? Like mm-hmm. we want to know what all those flavors are so that we can connect with the wider culture in our country.
2: Yeah. And I think that an interesting um, kind of microcosm of that would be the Takatunu Center that you you just mentioned because the the military base is right there right and so you know people who are not from Anchorage or are not from Alaska um, they can go to you know Raising Cane's or Olive Garden or Texas Roadhouse right and be right back home
0: right or they can go to the like poke place and have malasadas and have masubi and um or because one of the interesting things about the military is that military people tend to have actually super some of them because people are very well traveled they have really broad tastes like a lot Mm -hmm. of the older restaurants in town especially like places that were like sushi or Chinese that were Korean owned people will you'll ask people like why did you like who's your clientele and they'll just be like well a lot of people are military like the people who really get down on the like 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 traditional Korean foods right that we serve here but we also have this other like American menu whatever those people are military because they were in Korea or they're you know And uh, and so that's like one of the kind of interesting things is the military has actually really shaped the diversity of food here because there is like this well and Alaskans in general are well traveled. Mm -hmm. Many people are well traveled, Um, but it's like it's been this thing that's both kind of. You know, there's another kind of impulse where there's, you know, like a Taco Bell in Iraq at the base, you know, or whatever. Yeah. There's another military impulse, which is just like people are far from their families and they want things that are familiar. Like, so there is also that whole like Raisin Cane's vibe, too. Um, But but over time, like in the history of this, the city, um, the influence of the military has created like a larger and kind of more well-traveled market for different foods, I think.
2: And just to put myself on the spot, um, I've definitely been guilty of gravitating toward familiarity for, for me and Carrie's honeymoon. We traveled throughout France for a month. And one of our dirty secrets is that while we were road tripping around the country, um, we stopped at McDonald's a few times. And the first time we saw it, we're like, dude, should we do it? You know, we should go to McDonald's in France. Uh, because it's something that we recognize, we know exactly what we're getting. Um, but you know, it, it was a little shameful because the food there is so incredible.
0: Well, it's always fun to go to see what France has done to McDonald's. Like, <laughs> right. Like it's yeah. going to be better there just cause you're in France. Like just cause it will be better. Um, I get that. I mean, I think I was with a friend who, um, this is sort of related and sort of not, but there's sort of like a kind of a weird Chinese food slash pancake place, like on the spit in Homer. I'm trying to remember. And I was like, oh, I don't really see that as being like a place I want to go. And he's like, I see every place. And he was like, sort of, he's a fancy food person. But He was like, I see every Mm -hmm. place as a place I want to go because you never know if it's going to be good. And that's, you know, and I like that attitude for traveling. Although I tend to do Not that I've traveled that much the last couple of years, but I tend to do a ton of research and like always find places that, you know, I try to seek out cool places when I travel, but Mm -hmm. it's okay. You don't have to be ashamed of eating McDonald's in France.
2: (laughs) You know, I'm sure there are people who are originally from Alaska villages or communities who currently live in cities like Anchorage who long for subsistence food. You know, and I bring this up because we're talking about familiarity. Oh, yeah. And if, um, like we were talking about earlier, you're in the military, you get stationed in Anchorage. Maybe one thing that you do for comfort is you you go to that Olive Garden. Um, I wonder if there is some crossover with someone who's originally from an Alaska village or community and moving to Anchorage. And they're like, you know, I'd really like some of my my cultural food
0: i think that is a sort of a huge thing um especially as you know alaska native the alaska native population grows more and more biracial with each generation having subsistence food in the city is symbolic i mean I've done some reporting on this that never turned into a story, but it's really symbolic of the connections you have to the pl- your place of origin and your family of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so those flavors and knowing them, you know, understanding seal, what seal oil tastes like having whale in your mouth. Um, all of those things are so tied in with a sense of authenticity, but also connection to place. Um, you know, I mean, I, can't speak authentically for any of this as I am not native, but this is what I am told. Um, and so, you know, there are people who have told me these stories about like not even growing up in Alaska and not knowing native food, but that food and the harvest of food sort of subsistence practices have brought them back in connection with their distant relatives. Like I've, you know, I've talked to a woman who was like adopted out and she came back. Another person who went with their mom who was white, um, to live somewhere really far away, group Jewish, um, mm-hmm. and you know it ended up coming back to understand the culture by in you know participating in subsistence practices with distant relatives, um, and learning to eat the foods, um, you know, making this kind of homecoming through food. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why climate change is so devastating. Mm -hmm. is the way that it interrupts the practice of wild food harvest. You know, I mean, we've seen it with salmon. We see it with Ugric or bearded seal. um, And even bowhead act differently Mm -hmm. than they used to. And... It's just to make it harder to get the food that is so symbolic of a relationship to place. Um, there's just, it's like doubly heartbreaking um, when you look at it in the context of subsistence.
2: Mm-hmm. And how do you think that that affects a community?
0: Well, it can tear community apart. I mean, we've seen many examples of that, but... Um, you know, there are communities that, like, for example, Diomede is a community that used to get a whale. But in that situation, climate change has made it very unstable to travel in and out of the village. It gets like isolated, and it became too hard for elders to stay there. Um, And so the community lost elders and without elders, there isn't sort of that guide Mm -hmm. um, that can help you understand the place and the weather and the animals. Um, And they're just that community doesn't wail anymore, you know, um, as far as I know, uh, and hasn't for some time, but it's like one of those ways in which, you know, climate change just starts to take things apart but the same is true with you know there are lots of marine mammals that can be hunted but it's become more difficult like in the kotzebue region to hunt a bearded seal that hauls out on the ice because the ice doesn't stay where it used to mm-hmm. um, but that practice of going to get the seal with your family is really important and also In a community that has a higher level of people living below the poverty line that ugric which is a big huge animal just provides additional food Mm -hmm. um so that makes it hard without subsistence and like communities that depend on depend on salmon are like a really good example the chigniks are a good example although Their dependence on salmon is like both economic, it's like a fishing community. And then um, there's also people who subsistence harvest salmon. But that run has just not shown up um, for a number of four years. Um, And, you know, it's just people can't really stay there if they can't work by commercial fishing and they can't eat by having subsistence in their freezer. And so that's like a really sad story where those communities which are not i don't think they're traditional alaska native communities i think they're sort of 100 year old fishing communities but they still have native roots um Mm -hmm. i think that that's a situation where we will soon see that those communities can't really survive without the fish everything is nuanced it's all very complicated you know but chignik is a pretty cut and dry example because they also They get um, caribou out there, but the caribou run is not looking good. Um, But people move from one protein source to another, they adapt and they go farther in their boats. They, you know, there's a lot of ways in which native communities have always adapted and will continue to adapt. So I don't, Mm -hmm. it's just that some of these animals or the practices that people are used to have become more difficult um but there's a very strong determination to continue to do subsistence it is the strongest drive you know um so i don't know that you know subsistence will go away or that communities will go away but it does do things economically um and culturally when subsistence gets interrupted by climate anomalies mm-hmm.
2: In the process of writing your book, The Whale and the Cupcake, Stories of Subsistence, Longing, and Community in Alaska, did you have any experiences that changed the way you think about food?
0: That book is sort of a collection of writing that happened over four years, maybe. Um, But, I mean, the big things were that I I had the opportunity for, like, the first time in my career to travel more broadly in rural Alaska. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just was I was really lucky to be welcomed by people who just welcomed me into their kitchen and showed me how they were doing things. Mm-hmm. Um in particular I had this pretty incredible experience in Point Hope. Um just getting to be there during the subsistence feast that happens to celebrate whaling. So I got to see ice cellars and see a whole room full of women making a guduk with uh, seal oil and, um, you know, had got to be there to see the barrels that had been used to from, you know, that had been used for many generations to like ferment whale and watch the butchering of the various pieces and also the way that food was so sacred. Um, you know, that an elder was brought out in front of the group and fed the whale first. And, um, there's just like so many cool things and you can live in Anchorage for like a really long time and just have no consciousness of like what happens in native communities around Mm -hmm. food. And that's like, I wish that more reporters could see that and understand it. There would just be more of a wholeness. Um, I think one of the blind spots for me as a journalist, you know, coming up is that I just was so, I mean, it was what I wanted to write about, but I was so focused on the city um, that I just didn't have enough of an understanding of what's going on in this huge, huge part of the state that isn't the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think experiencing food in rural Alaska was really impactful. And I wish I could do more of it.
2: In my emails with Julie Decker of the Anchorage museum, she told me about how certain foods like cake mix have had a large influence on how people have cooked in Alaska over the last hundred years and how things like Tang pilot bread, canned tomatoes, canned milk, canned fruit cocktail, (laughs) and saltines are flavors that are nostalgic and telling about Alaska's isolation. What do you think these things tell us about our current understanding of Alaska's food and cooking culture?
0: Well, you know, there's never quite all the things that you need, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's no whole foods in Kenai or wherever you're cooking, but Alaskans diets have been really like the diets actually of people who live on islands like in the Philippines or um, in like Hawaii or whatever, but um, they're influenced by shelf-stable foods that are canned or pickled or powdered um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: because that those foods are easy, they travel well, and they keep, um, and so those foods really appear, like if you look through our cookbooks, which is one of the fun things I got to do when I was doing research for my book was just to look through historic, you know, cookbook collections, you just see a lot of these things and also recipes that try to avoid fresh ingredients. You know, it's like, here's a cake you can make with no milk, no eggs and no butter, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but Alaskans are really resourceful. So cake mix, which I read about in my book, is just a thing where it's super forgiving So you can kind of make a cake with like all kinds of different things from like dumping like a seven up in there or, um, (laughs) you know, or like using seagull eggs or, you know, whatever. And so there are these cooks in villages that have really gotten super creative. Um, You know, they're, they're influenced of course by like cable TV and all the cakes on there, but they also, I've gotten really creative with making cakes because there isn't like a bakery, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like making cakes with what they can find um, for people's birthdays and selling them on like Facebook or whatever.
2: Something else Julie told me that I found interesting was that the, the cookbooks found in Alaska villages and communities were from churches and community groups. How does that affect a community? where so much of its culture is based around subsistence
0: well i think the early cookbooks most of them are by like sort of the earliest ones that i looked at were like about 120 years old Um, and they were there's one from fairbanks um maybe 110 um that i'm thinking of in particular but it was a presbyterian women's society and presbyterian women wrote a lot of cookbooks and they um the whole thing was to sort of preserve some sense of the culture of the place where they came from. So there's lots of like white cakes and white flour and like, you know, the the books often have this like a couple of pages in the back that are like the sourdough section and it's like how to make moose or like what to do with cranberries or like you know mm-hmm. hunter's feast and that kind of thing but that sort of stuff was kept really separate um because there is this kind of whiteness to it a sort of Uh, sort of way of like keeping the wild place at bay by continuing on with the traditions you brought with you from Seattle or San Francisco or, you know, whatever it is to try to keep like a sense of propriety maybe is like what they might have been thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's lots of baking Uh, that calls for ingredients that I think were probably pretty hard for them to get but it's this idea of like, this could be anywhere. I'm not like in Fairbanks, Alaska in
2: 1913,
0: like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, uh, and so so the literature of cooking is pretty white bread, um, you know, early, and it gets different as time goes by, like by mid-century, which is not known for its food, um, The church cookbooks, like I kind of did a deep dive on a cookbook out of Sandpoint, but the cookbooks are there's much more use of wild food to kind of substitute in to recipes that are kind of very common, you know, like hamburger helper with moose kind of vibe, or Mm -hmm. um, not in that particular cookbook, but um, like like a lot of seafood, like um, subbing in salmon to like a canned salmon to like a a tuna noodle casserole would be like a recipe that you'd find out there. Um, So that's sort of a pretty soon it was like, well, if we can use these wild foods, but use them like they aren't wild, that's cool. Um, It isn't until, you know, we get into more of like the late seventies and eighties that there's sort of a, a sense of food that is truly Alaskan. Like that idea of putting like a salmon filet on the grill, Mm-hmm. Really started to happen in that period because it, you know, there was more shipping of fresh salmon like directly to grocery stores in Anchorage. Before then, most of it had been canned. But that sense of like a fillet of salmon on the grill being like a quintessential Alaskan thing. Like that would happen when people caught them themselves, you know, but like it being widely available in a grocery store food wasn't something that happened until, you know, we were around and you and I are really not that old, you know? Yeah. Um. So anyway.
2: That does it for my questions. This is this has really been a blast. I always like talking about food, probably because it's something I know so little about. <laughs> <laughs> And I wonder if, to end this episode, you could hit me with some sage advice or knowledge about food in Alaska.
0: Um, My only advice, which I always give to reporters, is always say yes when someone invites you in and offers you something, even if you're only gonna eat a little bit.
2: For more information about the Anchorage Museum, Visit AnchorageMuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keezy Baby.